Welcome back, pod people, to a new episode of Cinema de More. We're shifting directors. We're we're leaving Hitchcock and we're going into Wes Anderson. That's exciting. And I normally say that you know this was brought to you from Pittsburgh, from PA, but it's a PA and CO collaboration from here on out. We upped our number. This is our first original, our first new post on Cinema de Mori ever. We just keep losing. We've never gained one before, but today we've gained one. So, as usual, I'm Justin Morgan, one of your hosts, and we have Chuck Phillips. He's the second host. And our third host, Lexi. I don't, I don't give my last name. There's a drum roll going on here. Right. <laughs> and that, if you can count, is three. We're back. We're back to three for a little bit. Hopefully for a long time, but we'll see. We'll see how she feels name. about this. Now, Lexi was on her own podcast for a while. And as things shift and move around, she's ended up on ours. So the thing that I'm most excited about is that this is going to be changing uh, the dynamic a little bit. Because on we all kind of get an even piece of what we're going to discuss. We all have like a say input in what we're going to talk about. So overall, it will shift the dynamic of the podcast a little bit. And also, what I'm excited about is she'll make she'll mix some episodes <laughs> and uh, help us in transforming into something better. I guess I guess that's the best way to put it. I mean, no promises. Oh, I'm you learning don't... as I go along too. Uh, it's trying new things. I always want the podcast to sound fresh. I want it to sound decent and then fresh. Well, if anything, you're adding an LGBTQ plus person to your roster. So our white guy streak is over. There you go. We did it, Chuck. We did it. You got a transgender woman. So... I'm patting myself on the back here. Taking a multiple boxes. <laughs> if I was uh, an ethnicity, you would just be like, right? Yeah, he, yeah. We we've if missed on one ancestry.com That's true. We have we have verifiable proof that there's not something there. I'm Canadian. Uh, <laughs> close enough, I guess. Foreigner. Yeah. yeah. You are a foreigner. That's right. We don't understand how that healthcare system. It doesn't make sense down here. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, this is the new podcast. It sounds a lot like the old podcast, I guess. <laughs> We've had you guest several times, so... Yeah, this isn't my first rodeo on here. People uh, might be surprised. Welcome to the chaos, is all I can say. I think I'll add some spices to it. I tend to, tend to be a little... I was saying that your show does intimidate me a bit because it's been a long laughing and I was like you know I've been crawling around in the gutter with Jacob for like two and a half years now like digging treasures out like look at this one and you're over here like up on the hill with your like fine dining film 
and I was like, I don't know if I'm totally prepared for... Temporarily. We did Toilet of the Dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. But yeah, so you guys tended to cover a wider, diverse range of film, which I have to say on my show, well, my show was fun. It was getting boring. I was dealing with like the same kind of... Because like with film remakes, especially with film remakes, there's so many horror movies. And that's okay, but like they're, they're so bad. And they're You're also the doubling up on every episode. Every oh, episode yeah. is two movies. And, and sometimes we had episodes that we had four movies. Like some of them are three or four movies as well. So then you're watching like the same movie like three and four times. And, you know, I'm not even going to say the idea is dead. You know, we talked about retooling it to Oops, I Did It Again. Or Oops, They Did It Again. And I think that's still in like the possibility. But I think if I do... Like, you know, obviously I'm focused with you guys now and then I might do it like once a month kind of thing. So it's not quite so draining. Expand or do whatever you need to do to make it work. Right. Uh, Honestly, the reason that this podcast works the way it does is because we've failed in those ways or we've seen how time consuming some of those things can be. And so we occasionally jump into time consuming things. That's Occasionally we say, hey. We're going to do all the Star Wars movies. That might be the last big one that we've done. That's a lot. We did Planet of the Apes, man. Yeah, Planet of the Apes. But we spaced Planet of the Apes out nicer. We we did that better, yeah. We did all the Marvel ones. That was the biggest one. Marvel was crazy because to to do it, we had to start weeks in advance, and we were doubling up our recordings. So whatever theme we were on, we'd, we'd also do a Marvel movie. We'd... You know, keep moving on and that's the way that we had an entire month where like every single day was a new episode on a on a personal level this is very exciting for me because i've been wanting to specifically work with you for years justin on a podcast and so now to finally have the opportunity to actually come in and like work with you work with you i'm like super excited so Hey, I love hearing it because I feel like I normally hear pretty negative stuff. So, <laughs> looking forward to it. But you're part of it, like you're you're in it now. Yeah, that's. And fine. Chuck, did you see the appreciation? Did you hear that? <laughs> I heard it. You've been working with me for so long. You don't even. You didn't even notice the gift that you had. Nope. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, honestly, it's kind of strange. Our podcast has been remote for over a year now, and James hasn't been on the podcast for over a year now. Time flies. It really didn't feel like that long ago, but we managed. never not done this remotely. Like, my show from the get-go was all remote, then yours is remote. Like, I think I don't know how to do a podcast in person, to be perfectly honest. To be perfectly honest, when we go back to in person, you're gonna make all, you're gonna make every episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just I'll fly just, here. I'll just be there. You, you rack know. up the miles. I like I like Pennsylvania. Oh, we're not well. Yeah, it's nice. I like. I, you're still in like the the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. Yeah, I like the Pittsburgh area. I don't know about Philly. I never went down there, but. So, you know, I, I lived in Manesson, though. I can't see that possibly of getting any better. At this. It hasn't. That's it, so it's funny. become more of a hot spot for filming, though. I believe it. If, you, if you're looking for... That was one of my comments about uh, 
Pennsylvania, I was like, I understand why this is like the zombie capital of the world. I was like, because it looks like America's garbage dump. Like <laughs> there's just abandoned cars all over the fields and all this stuff. And I was like, it's perfect for apocalypse film. Well, like, Romero was ahead of his time because right. I don't feel that that was how Pittsburgh was <laughs> in, the, in the 70s. I am working right next to the Monroeville Mall in the current movie that Very I'm working nice. on. I'm going to have to stop in one day because there's a bust of George Romero I haven't seen. No? Have you seen the museum that's in there? Nope. There's a little, like, uh, Dawn of the Dead museum. I don't know if it's still there or not, but when we were going to school, it was there. We used to go into it. it I have cool. a a buddy that I work with, also from Colorado, not big on horror movies. But I'm like, you know how important that mall is. It's right right there, right down the hill. Right. He shot Dawn of the Dead there. Oh, go in there and find the bus to George Romero. They actually shot a lot of movies there. It's not the only one. And I think, well, I think recently. they did. I think they did Dawn of the Dead there. Well, before it opened. Yeah. No, no, it was open. Yeah. Wait, it yeah. Opened. Yeah. It was open. They had to but... film at night during Christmas. Uh... Yeah. And that, that was really annoying because while they were filming, the music would just come on. Yeah it was automatically timed so they knew when the music started playing in the mall that they had to stop doing what they were doing it the hell out as quickly as possible love it it was an awful photo shoot sounds like it was hell i'm sorry film shoot <laughs> could have been a photo shoot too it might have been both we right. never know but yeah it's it's got that's like the closest history that pittsburgh really has to film everything else is kind of i mean john lighter. waters john waters is like a pittsburgh icon or any of his movies, Pittsburgh? I, I didn't yeah, think they. Most of his movies, Pittsburgh and Baltimore, a lot of them. And then I think of things like Silence of the Lambs. It just has like a little bit. Pittsburgh's known for filth. <laughs> Romero and Waters and cult movies. It's good for cult movies. Unless you're an actor, then we got our we got our Jeff Goldblums and our Michael Keatons. Is Goldblum from there? <laughs> I love Goldblum so good yeah uh and speaking of goldblum this is the first wes anderson movie with jeff goldblum that we're going to be talking about today we didn't start with the very first wes anderson film because we didn't start with the second either or, or the, the third, third. <laughs> we started with the fourth one yeah where his career really started <laughs> I'm surprised that none of you guys picked like Rushmore Tannen bombs for this. I I wanted to. I I would even discuss Bottle Rocket. I I love Bottle Rocket. You do see the transformation really within those first three films. Boral Tannen bombs is kind of like where he I don't want to say peaked, but where he hits the Wes Anderson. That it's, yeah, it's all where, the like, films the style. Right. That's where he's like his style like kind of fully forms or like Rushmore and Bottle Rocket are still kind of like very loose. Uh, he hasn't like completely locked down all those ideas, but yeah, Royal Tannenbaums are like, that's where he really starts to get into pretty much every film after that's an ensemble cast more so. Whereas like Rushmore's very specifically Bill Murray and um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Owen Wilson. No, in Rushmore, uh, Oh, 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 Schwartzman. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman. Like, He's it's pretty much just those players, two. Yeah, yeah he, he just has those two to work with. The Royal Tenenbaums is the first one where he got, like, just an entire huge cast. with. Uh... He does have Luke Wilson in the first three movies, though. Yeah. 
I love I love Rushmore. I think that's a great movie. I I like I you know he's he's a filmmaker that came out in that time period where there was a lot of like styles of films like Rushmore coming out like that sort of like new wave art film director kind of stuff of like the late nineties early two thousands, but like his stuff really did stand above the crowd with that stuff. Like this is like the Napoleon Dynamite era kind of a film, and his stuff really like had a depth and intelligence to it that the rest of those just didn't. That I think is the reason he's still here. Yeah, there's a great style to his work. I think that his very first movie, Bottle Rocket, shows that he can work very well with a budget. Right. He's he's also a, a Coppola, so like he comes from he comes from that filmmaking family. I didn't know that. That makes perfect sense now. And, and yeah. This guy Sophie has a similar style to him, actually, in a lot of ways. When you think about it, yeah, I I, I think it says a lot about him when you watch these movies because most of these people are, I don't know, sophisticated is the right word, but they're usually like overly highbrow people that are out of touch, right. which is maybe who Wes Anderson is as a person, since these are the people that he follows the most. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see like how actors like bill murray really latch on to him must have been a very good experience with rushmore to carry on throughout like i believe we talked about this off the podcast but bottle rocket i believe is the only movie of wes anderson's without bill murray in it it's the only one that he's not in and owen wilson's in almost all of them yeah like all but two or three yeah there's only like one or two that he doesn't pop in i think moonrise kingdom and maybe isle of the dogs i think or like maybe the only two that he's not in i haven't seen isle of the dogs yet we get a really weird thing that happens once an actor ends up working with wes anderson they never stop (laughs) that's great it's just like it's like a that cartoon of the snowball that's rolling down the hill and everybody starts like getting mixed into it. What's the guy from the piano? Cause he starts working with Adrian Brody. Yeah. Uh, The pianist. Yeah. He's Adrian Brody kind of got blacklisted too. He's not in very much beyond Wes Anderson films at this point. I think Predators was the last big theatrical film I actually saw him in. Yeah, probably. And he does, he picks up all my, all my favorite actors end up in these Wes Anderson movies. Or I think the actors that don't always work the best work really well in his movies, such as Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson's funny, but you you can see that there's a lot of trash when he doesn't have that guidance. Who's the older actor that's in Royal Tannenbaums that work with him? I think Gene Hackman. Him. Yeah, Gene Hackman yeah. hates him, right? Yeah. He won't work with him anymore after that. I mean, he won't work with anybody anymore. Yeah. He quit acting. It's more yeah. just Gene Hackman's problem. Uh, Welcome to Mooseport <laughs> was his last movie. It was so wow. bad that he quit acting. I don't know why he would. I mean, I don't know what happened on set, but I, that's one of my favorite Gene Hackman performances. So he does a great job. Hackman I don't know where, he, where the hate comes. I guess Tenenbaums is weird, too, because I don't remember Gwyneth Paltrow coming back for anything after that, either. That's that's fair as well. Yeah. Yeah. He, doesn't get, he doesn't get everybody. It's like every uh, on almost all the films, he gets somebody to come back. But, you know, every once in a while, there's those ones that 
that don't well, reappear. Well, actors that stick. This is Jeff Goldblum's film where he sticks. Yeah. Willem Dafoe. Oh yeah, Willem Dafoe's in a lot of them too. He's yeah. so good in this movie, and like I'm watching it, and I'm like, "That's Willem Dafoe," and I'm like, "No, it's not." And I'm like, "No, it's definitely Willem Dafoe," and I'm like, "Are you sure?" Because it's like just such an unusual performance for him. But then it's like not because he's so fucking diverse. The the pictures that compare him from Life Aquatic to the Lighthouse, like as if he evolved the <laughs> yeah. crazy semen. Yeah. <laughs> he's got the he's got the crazy eye. I want to see that movie. Yeah, I mean, what's the, um, I think it's the Denmark filmmaker. Is it Zemek? The one that does all the crazy, like, special effects that they incorporate Henry into their... What? Henry Selleck? Uh, well, he does do, he does do the artwork, but I'm talking about farther back. I have I no idea. I thought his name was Zemek. I could look him up. But anyways, it is Henry Selleck in this movie, yeah. but he does it to the style of like the old old school films that you have to use the special effects to 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 have the, the aquatic life in this movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything in this movie effects wise is like super adorable. Like it's traditional there's like all these like stop motion things and like but it's all done in this like very cute very innocent very playful kind of way and it makes the film like nothing's very threatening in the movie you know what i mean because it's all very soft and warm and what have you jeff goldblum's kind of threatening well but then like (laughs) the story itself is very adult so even though like visually it has this like very soft warm like cute kind of like fun appeal to it it's like it's a very kind of bleak story about a man who's at the end of his career and isn't sure what to do with his life and like isn't even sure what he's done with his life at this point and like where things are going to go and he's just trying to figure out like the next chapter and he can't figure it out uh he ends adventure number 12 (laughs) it's not like the old days i love his soundtracks like he gets up he's like hold on and he puts his like little tapes on it's just like this like really bad casio music this also very heavy on the david bowie in portuguese yeah that's it's i think this and this and darjeeling have my favorite soundtracks yeah he does a lot of classic rock in this one plus then he has uh mark mothersbaugh from devo doing a lot of the music for this so it's it it works really well with his style but yeah i i think I don't, I don't know what what draws me to this movie more than some of the other ones uh i think that is like a common theme in a lot of his films is uh, like with the gene hackman character with his family kind of like that guy getting to a point I'm in his dying. life when yeah when it's just like he doesn't yeah he doesn't know what to do with his life and he kind of like looks around and everything around him's kind of a failure well, uh, also think about the kids in Tenenbaums, yeah, the, because the they all there. peaked at like age eight. <laughs> like they yeah. all peaked as children. Yeah, they so they're all depressed and uh, just having miserable lives. Uh, yeah, with, with this with this film, he gets the our character of Steve Zissou meets maybe his son, which is how he refers to him throughout most of the film. Is this is maybe my son? <laughs> and he doesn't know how to handle that information, being in his fifties and being told he has a fully grown adult son that maybe is his or maybe not. 
I love when he's told and he has to smoke a joint on the edge of the boat for five minutes before he comes back and talks to him. It looks like he's about to jump. Yeah. So it's a lot of a lot of information to process. He's not sure not sure how to go with it. Um Well, I mean, it is really funny, beyond having his style. Although it feels like one of the darker ones too, where the consequences really are real. Like they have There's like a lot one. of people actually getting murdered and like Yeah. <laughs> it's a surprisingly bleak film. Yeah. I was thinking that while I was watching it. Like I said, the visual style is so jovial and playful and then it's like such a dark bleak film and i, I remember that... uh sorry go ahead well i just i love i love uh wes anderson's visual style like that's one thing about him is like you know it's his movie every time it, like if you could just put a movie on and without knowing it's his and then start watching it you could be like oh yeah this is definitely his like without within like five ten minutes of it you'll figure it out pretty quickly and i, I think this movie really like is when he started pushing the limits of his visual style. Cause his other two films are kind of grounded in reality. Whereas this is when he starts really kind of amping his like effects up. Yeah. A lot more. I, like, I, I, love I the enjoy. Cutouts. Yeah. I was about to say, I love like the sets that he does where it's like the, sets the, are the, so butt, cool. the boat cut in half and it like follows him. Like when he tells, uh, when he tells Owen Wilson, I need to have a, I need to have a word with you. And they just go around through every room of the boat and it's just all it just tracks them as they're going through that side cutout of the boat going up through every room and running into all the characters as they go along. That set is so cool. That's such an interesting set. Yeah. I, I yeah, I enjoy when he first introduces it. Every time when he talks about the uh the dolphins. They're supposed to be very intelligent, but I've yet to see any evidence of it. <laughs> yeah. And he tries multiple times to he's like he's like, Can you get the dolphins to like do a pass behind the boat <laughs> he's just like he just messes with it for like a second he's just like eh. either they don't understand or they just don't want to and he's just like fucking dolphins i like when the dolphins record uh owen wilson having sex with the, the recorder yeah and he, he just catches a glimpse on like the, yeah. the screen real quick and then when he looks in the dolphins are just looking at each other and he's like he's like oh, what's it's <laughs> like he's not sure if he what he saw was real or if he like just imagined it in his head I uh, learned to scuba dive in Pittsburgh because it was something that my my mom's boyfriend was into. And I remember him talking about how they all went to go see that Life Aquatic movie, the <laughs> entire scuba group, and they hated it because it wasn't like an accurate scuba diving movie. <laughs> but it does have some good... It has weird elements into it where it's obviously a Moby Dick story. And there is slight Jaws references, but the way that he plays it is always funny, even when the whole idea, the whole catalyst of the story is that his his good friend got eaten by this jaguar shark. Or what was it? Uh, <laughs> what did Jack call shark? He called he it the it right. leopard fish or something. Yeah, when someone says he's uh, not sure It was what a it jaguar is. shark. I so actually that, liked the jaguar shark. It was very Tim Burton like circa like 89 when he was like in his like early stop motion stages. Oh yeah. It, it definitely has that oogie boogie feel to it too. It's where so it good. I love has it. that like a cool green, uh, neon look yeah, to it. When it glows, when it starts we're safe in here, right? Hmm, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it says like capacity eight and there's like 12 people riding it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's another, that's, there's a lot of like, uh, 
for for as dark as this story gets uh, yeah this is like the first one of his films that i that seems to go full-on like whimsical with some of the tone of it like like yeah the the comically disproportionate size of the boat when you see it when you see the mini sub on the deck of the boat and it's obviously like not that big but when they show when they're all in it and it's got like yeah 20 people sitting in the thing like it's obviously (laughs) not the not the correct proportions to what it was when it was up there I mean, it gets whimsical too when they go to Jeff Goldblum's station. That's out there. It's it doesn't have a very realistic feel to it. It's also comical for how tall it is, and all those people are up there as if they just jumped off of their boat or something. But they would have all had to make that hike up there. I feel like I'll have to report any illegal activity. Well, you do whatever you have to. I feel like this should be one of his stronger films for people to be into. And I feel like its fan base is a bit like weak, but I think like I can see why critics really like this movie. Like this is not necessarily a film for like, I don't want to say normal people because it's films for everybody, but like Chuck's favorites, not for normal people. It's really, it's really like, of his catalog of work like this is definitely a critic darling not a like audience film whereas his other films well as his films go on they become all critic films but like his earlier stuff really was like much more for everybody there was a much broader audience with it and i think this one was very like tight but I think like as time goes on the cult following on this one is really strong like i was really surprised at work to Cause I talk, I work with a bunch of Gen Z's and they love this movie and actually they love Wes Anderson. And these are people that I talk to every day and they don't watch movies. And this is the first time I've gotten these Gen Z kids to generally be excited about film and tell me about like movies they like. And I'm like, Holy shit. They well, like, that's cause you're talking about them. movies they've watched, <laughs> but like they really like Wes Anderson, which we've been trying to figure out what films appeal to that generation as a whole. And, it seems like they in particular really like Life Aquatic out of his catalog of films a lot. So I was really surprised to learn that. Remember the series of, I want to say, American Express commercials with him? Yeah. Where they had his style and... It was like parroting himself, yeah. Yeah, he'd just like walk around from set to set. It'd be ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, and it would all... He'd be like, random explosion, and a car would randomly blow up, and he'd be like, that's yeah, what I, I do in my that. movies. Yeah. <laughs> I just want a tiny explosion and it blows up yeah. intensely. Yeah. It's like perfect. I don't think this pen's the right color gold. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the weird random details. Yeah, this movie's this movie's a lot more, I feel like, moments than like a whole film. And I don't know if maybe that's why like yeah. some people like it better. Like, because it is just, there's so many. Uh, and well, yeah, when I was in high school, that's when this film came out. And I would, me and my friends all liked it. And it was one of those things where you would just like bring up like the random stupid scene or something like when he gets like super excited about his Adidas track shoes. And every Dude. time you see someone getting new Adidas track shoes, they're all doing like the same like pumping themselves the up. Moves. Like, like it's it's so dumb because it like never comes up ever again other than he just randomly is like he's like hyping up the Adidas track shoes. And he's like, yeah, we had a pretty good sponsorship deal. Uh, then they cut us off. He's like, but they were produced like 100,000 of these. So I just get Adidas shoes like every month. Every everybody so- gets a new one. So they made those, the Suzu shoe? They did they, make they them. They are real, yeah. They I did make them. Apparently they were limited when they first came out, so yeah. 
I think people have like re somebody's they've like reissued them at some point. They but. did do a reissue, but from my understanding, it was also like a raffle yeah. because they still didn't make a, enough of them or a lot of them. Yeah. I guess they know their audience. They're like, it's a very particular person that wants the that wants shoe. Steve Zissou Adidas. I don't think shoes. I would wear them if I had them. I think those would be a display piece. They would like, go wonderfully with the track suits from Royal Tenant Moms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do do like a whole outfit of uh of Wes. Yeah, that's that's what you go for Halloween. As like, what are you? I'm a Wes Anderson character, and you just have like the traits of like four different movies or something. Well, like that. it's interesting too because Royal Tenant Moms, all the characters are uniquely di- like their costumes feel like they're different movies. Yeah. Right. And then you get to Zizu and they go back to like almost all, all of them are almost wearing the exact, everyone same wears thing. the exact same thing all the time. Yeah. It's even like, it's even made of a like joke when he hands them like the red cap and the Glock. And he's like, he's like, no, I don't want that. And he, he look he goes, doesn't everyone get a Glock? And she's like, no, the interns are sharing one. And he's like, just take it anyway. But just say, yeah, that that like random, like everybody has to have a red cap, which I do love that they all have slightly different red caps. Like the one guy has a turban that's a red cap. Some people have like the little tassel on top, like other people's are different, but they all have a red cap of some kind. All He's the same color. A, yeah, all He's the same color. a parody color. of Jacques Cousteau. So, yeah. Because that's exactly how Jacques Cousteau used to dress. So he's like a bad parody of Jacques Cousteau. That goes back to the techno music as well. Because like you know his early documentaries used to have that really weird like early synthesizer music yeah. that he used in all of his stuff. And I think um, he also edited and cut on the ocean while he was recording his stuff too, as well as Jacques Cousteau. I think that was one of his things he was known for. So I don't know uh, how much Wes Anderson did in the ocean though. I don't think he did very much at all. I think it was all probably done on a shoreline, if most. The one thing I was thinking about was, would you ride in that balloon with the the seat belts on it? Yes, I would too. Like I was like, and then it, like he pulled out a joint, and I was like, dude, I would so smoke a joint up there. But also like, it's a little nerve wracking. You know what I mean? I'd even get in the plane. That when was the last time the this helicopter? Was when's the oh, last helicopter. time? Yeah, when's yeah, the yeah. last time this whirly bird's been serviced? No, no, Klaus oh. is supposed to check it every six months. <laughs> that's actually my favorite kind of helicopter those like glass bubble yeah that's like i always it, wanted to ride in one of those it's such like an it's, old, old look it's really funny too because anything that you fly should be looked over before every flight oh absolutely yeah. not every six not months yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah klaus looks at it every six months which which also is uh is like a good callback to when he asks uh when he asks ned to join his team and he's like I don't know anything about being an oceanographer. And he goes, well, no one does. And he like, he's like, Klaus used to be a bus driver. And he's like, he just points out that like all of them are, are highly unqualified for the jobs that they have. Like he just, but it is like, it's a weird, that's, uh, that's one of the things I love about this movie is that kind of, I guess, feels like the, feels like the message there that it, that he's going for. Is it like, but they're all still a family, even though, again, they're they're all wildly unqualified for the jobs they have. And they don't seem to even particularly get along with each other on most days. But they're all just a bunch of weirdos that just they like being around each other and like uh, doing this as their job because they're they couldn't find anything else better to do. So they all just hang out on a boat and go look at, you know, weird sea creatures for a living just because. It's it's the only thing that they feel like is something worth doing. I mean, riffing off of that, it's definitely a place where these outcasts feel that they belong. Yeah. So it does have that like island of misfit toys feel to it. They've right. all and it's it's the matching uniforms. It shows that there's unity there that they finally have in their lives. Yeah. 
but yeah, it's 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 the, obviously uh, another theme that Wesley Anderson uses a lot is like uh, the relationship with like father figures, which comes up in yeah almost every single one of his films in in some way, whether it's like or something like uh, the Royal Tenenbaums is is a noticeable one. Uh, and then in something like this, he has his father figures, which was like Esteban that dies at the beginning. Uh, and then he has Ned, but then it also feels like everybody, it's almost like a Peter Pan and the Lost Boys type thing. Like he's everyone's dad, which right. is like why Klaus gets so jealous. It's not just that he, he works with them. Like he feels like Steve is his dad too. And that he's, he's always been with him. And he's like, who's, yeah. What does he say? Where's this jerk off coming from? <laughs> But there's also this feeling of if Zuzu isn't there, it all falls apart. And so if he's in a bad mood or he's sad or he's in like a bad state, then they they can't function as a unit. So they need him as well. So it's also about like keeping him in a consistent state of functionality so that they can function as well. And there's that consistent theme throughout it of him. Like this is kind of like the end for him because he's like at the end of his desire to keep pushing forward and working and it's creating all these rifts among them and then what unites them is finding the jaguar shark and that's the thing that ignites the flame to bring them all back together sort of thing or that idea of being a family man and what that means and how that weighs on him right yeah he just doesn't know he doesn't know how to he definitely definitely doesn't know how to handle any major responsibility he seems to be seems you picked a, up on that yeah yeah maybe just a little bit that's also i guess kind of like seems like even though it's like the life aquatic with steve zisu maybe like the only person that was really keeping him going was uh was like esteban or something and as soon as he dies he's just like like that was the guy he was following around and he's like i don't know who to follow uh esteban got eaten by a jaguar shark in front of me and now i have no clue how to lead this thing by myself well and he doesn't know how to deal with the sun either yeah, it's so accepting he, responsibility. And he That's doesn't his issue. Want, well, he's always running off to smoke weed, too. So he's shrugging his responsibility to get high constantly and avoid everything, which marijuana is a good avo- a metaphor for complete avoidance. So. Now it's a social norm, so I'm not quite sure that's true. I mean, it's still avoidance, trust me. <laughs> Cinematically. Right. Right. Yeah, it's just like I'm trying to think of all the the tropes that come up in in this movie for the first time too. Uh, it's kind of a cheat, but the way that he plays with aspect ratio when they're showing the film, and he doesn't go all the way of changing the aspect ratio. He uses curtains, right? And then you get movies from like, uh, is it Grand Budapest Grand on Hotel. where? Yeah, it's like three different aspect ratio. It's just like everything after that. The he's aspect ratios all over the place he's like they don't matter yeah. anymore <laughs> yeah i can I, change them mid-movie <laughs> that's like yeah that's like a weird thing that's that's uh yeah seem seems to be like a very much more recent thing that's why everyone brings up like a24 like how many of their films are shot in full screen because it's just like a mid 90s i think was in full screen the lighthouse was in full justice screen. league that came out yeah like yeah really we are really are at the point that like i've never seen so many people want to talk about it i still remember when we were at hollywood video i don't like the movie it's got the black on the top oh, and the bottom it's you're cutting off half of my movie where's the rest of my Sun movie Coast. i can't see it i love it would, that video that i found of 
Scorsese talking about aspect ratio. And I was like, we need this on a loop. It's going to educate everybody. <laughs> he, Speaking of course, Scorsese, he's one of the people that they asked him something years ago. His question was, I don't remember what it was on. They asked him who would be who he saw in his own eyes as the next Scorsese, and he picked Wes Anderson. I don't know if he elaborated on it. I can't remember, but even though the style is very distinct for Wes Anderson, something something he, sparked with Scorsese that he sees movie? himself. I want to see Wes Anderson's mob film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of a mob in. Grand Budapest. A little bit. You kind of kind of get that general idea. But yeah, I do I do love the uh, when you start to get some of the parodies of Wes Anderson style. Like I know they did the uh, they did that one on SNL a few years ago that was like if Wes Anderson did a horror film like The Purge and it was uh, uh, Edward Norton was on there playing Owen Wilson's character in that one. And it was like it they did just hit like all of the classic uh, tropes that he runs into like the kids are the kids are improvising weapons and it feels like Moonrise <laughs> Kingdom and they're like they're hitting like all of the points exactly like what a Wes Anderson horror movie would be. The 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 main villain doesn't kill with like a chainsaw he kills because he's a falconer and he just has a falcon with him. I think you're right in regards to the way he once he pulls an actor in to work with, he tends to continue to work with him. Like he really actually saves a lot of people's careers. There's a lot of people that like hadn't done anything for a really long time then get like put in a Wes Anderson film and then like you only see them in Wes Anderson films but like at least they're getting work <laughs> yeah it was, and it's uh, not a bad place to be I'd rather I'd rather be stuck working on just Wes Anderson films than like Weinstein movies well yeah. Weinstein's locked up so yeah. I just mean in general like when, when you go over like the products that were produced from that studio for a long time like they tend to be like the really poorly kind of like of the moment sort of movies they're not really timeless in a lot of ways so I'd rather work on so I always said I'd rather have one really successful cult film under my belt than like 50 moderately successful mainstream films. I mean, it's interesting, though, too, because some of the ones that are big, I think Quentin Tarantino, they're very popular. Like, he can throw his name out there and sell tickets on his name alone. Wes Anderson's movies don't usually make a lot of money, and they're exactly what we were expecting. I Even his right. big critical darlings like the Grand Budapest Hotel, I don't think it made a lot of money. I think it might have been his most successful, but people weren't dying to go see it. It's rare to find a director in this day and age who is able to produce their own content and continue. It's like he got Wes Anderson, like fucking Christopher Nolan. That's about it. I mean, he made his own style. Yeah. His like very flat shots with the, his like, very vibrant colors. I love his a lot style. of primary colors. Not a lot of people. I mean, it got to a point where it, it's kind of how David Lynch had developed his own style, right? And now people are copying it. You can't you can't replicate Wes Anderson without being called out on it. Although I can't really think of. Uh, I've seen style. I've seen the Wes Anderson uh, a little bit in other movies, but failing. Yeah, that Science of Sleep movie really tried to replicate his style, and it was awful. 
or I think of like Monument Men, which didn't have the exact style, but was totally lacking. Like the, it tried to do the dialogue delivery similar, but right. it wasn't a hundred percent shot like a like a Wes Anderson. Except the, I remember them all standing on a landmine, and that was like the most Wes Anderson thing. But yeah, I guess what is the Wes Anderson thing? He should. It, try it's something that's film. like you could you can tell. There's like danger, but things are a little bit ridiculous at the same time. I think his style is like New England high society kind of that sort of like mindset, like American high society. Like that tends to be like where a lot of his style and visual cues draw from. If you maybe that's I mean. why he left America. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Zizu is him going out and leaving America in the ocean because after that he starts visiting all different locations that I don't think are you for the most part not American well he likes he has an excellent use of color you're gonna find on this show that I talk about color a lot <laughs> um, but his use of color is like so stunning like he has he's one of the best color directors out there and he always like each one of his films is unique in their like color scheme like Tannenbaum's like a lot of red this movie uses that powder baby blue as like the focal color when you talk about Grand Budapest a lot of purple purple's like a majority color in that film so like he's really good at like color scheming his films out and each one of his films is uniquely colored Rushmore even itself is like one of his least colorful films it's a very like bleak film the way it's shot like everybody's in like tweed suits and like there's just the like boy school kind of look there's not like a whole lot of color to it which school itself is not a very colorful place typically so it was meant to create a prison feel no the most color in that i think is the end with uh his stage play that's like apocalypse now or, yeah. or whatever yeah that <laughs> <laughs> the sound design is just as good as probably apocalypse now right in that moment yeah. Did he? Yep. You, do you think that he's the director who really built Jason Schwartzman's career? I mean, probably. I feel like Schwartzman probably took off with Rushmore. So, yeah. even though he's not in or doesn't have as prominent of a role in the following movies, I think it always goes back to Rushmore. Right. Yeah, he pops up here and there. Uh, I feel like this too gets maybe I guess out of all of his films the closest that uh, Wes Anderson ever comes to doing like an all-out action uh, set. Like he never really he he does like some there's some like uh, maybe maybe exciting moments, but this is like the one that full on goes with like like where he really starts to get uh, all-out gunfire all and explosions. Yeah, when it starts the <laughs> Zizu like shooting up everybody yeah. and. That person that gets the one guy the that machete, gets a machete in yeah. the shoulder, <laughs> which I love that <laughs> part. When he, yeah, when he when he shoots the when he shoots that guy and he drops the machete into his shoulder, <laughs> it just starts spraying blood all over the place. And then, hey, but, and yeah. that's the guy that sticks around. He's, yeah, he's the one that he's the one that stays with him. It's yeah, I always love that. I I can't flunk you, but I'm not going to pass you either. You all get incompletes. This is bullshit. Uh, but yeah, when they when they go on the uh, the big rescue mission's always great. Uh, when they go in and, and randomly find that uh, they've also taken uh, Jeff Goldblum's character hostage as well at that hotel. 
<laughs> on the on that little island. The, the yeah, the gunfire in this. I guess it's closest to that scene at the end of Rushmore, but I don't really think we see a gunfight quite like this in any of his other films. The yeah. action kind of changes from film to film. I think of Grand Budapest where they're doing the skiing. Yeah. Or I you might not have watched it yet, but the French dispatch has an action scene that is very interesting. I don't want to ruin it. No, you're good. But it, it's it's good. sort of like his action is defined by the style that he chooses. And I think that that shot that you were talking about inside the boat where it just kept following them from cabin to cabin to cabin is very similar to how the shootout worked. It was all, the camera's like always on a dolly and it's always going from side to side. Yeah. Where it's just following all that gunfire, but somehow they're still not able to like hit, hit him from there. Also that like at the very end when they blow up that boat, like I don't, it, it's weird that he gets these sparks of violence and I think that's kind of what makes his other films more surprising is that when the violence happens, you're not you're not quite ready for it. So yeah. it's like it's like, oh, it's all funny and goofy and then well, Jeff Goldblum loses his fingers or whatever. You or, know, the, like, uh, or when he throws the cat out the window. Yeah. Well, like, I think the, my violence, cat out the, window? the violence works better than like when the drama aspects come in. Like when they crash in the helicopter and the sun dies. I'm like, whoa, this movie just took like a hard left turn into like serious drama. And it like doesn't really like maintain being funny after that. Like once the son gets in the helicopter accident, the whole film's tone changes. Yeah. And he like, it all just becomes very grounded in reality. I think too, what I was saying before too, I think is interesting is like that the, the main character story is a very grounded in reality, very serious story that's wrapped around this absolutely bizarre wrapping like his sets and his like costumes and like his weird equipment that he has and his like bizarre boat and all this kind of shit is like all the, the, the focus of what you're watching. But like the story is like just like this bleak story about a guy who's like friend died and he's at the end of his life and like doesn't know the what color to do and the comedy kind of disguise that bleak story. And then, like, it finally unravels right at the end when the helicopter crashes. Like, that's that's it. The joke's over. Like, you didn't maintain your helicopter. You just killed someone. This isn't a fucking joke anymore. This isn't funny anymore. Like, let's be serious now and, like, get I'm guessing that's out. why Chuck connects to it. He is, he is Zizu at the end, seeing the Jaguar <laughs> shark bawling. That's yeah. the last, like, silly part. But also that part is that uniting kind of, like, it's the validation of everything it validates him and gives him like shows him like he wasn't crazy because he like people thought he was crazy and he started he, he started thinking he was crazy too and he's like it's fucking real now i can quit now i can stop yeah. okay there it is let's fucking be done i brought my name respectably back to where it needs to be so i love the guy with the posters <laughs> and he's like sign this one <laughs> And this one, and he keeps flipping. How many the of these you got, buddy? Why don't you? I why like, don't you just forge uh, the rest at home, and then when the guy's like, "I could have just done that already." My my favorite moment in this movie is after they've already robbed Jeff Goldblum, and then they dealt with the pirates, <laughs> and they're ready to throw that guy overboard. But then Jeff Goldblum's boat comes yeah. up, and they're like, 
going to board, and he's like, cover up all the stuff from yeah. him. What are we gonna do about the body? Throw him off throw, the other throw side. Throw him of off the, the other side. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that's I always love that. And when uh, when they get Jeff Goldblum back onto their boat, and he's like, he goes, "Is that my coffee maker? Why, <laughs> yeah, why do you guys? Machine. Yeah, why do you guys have that?" And the the Bond Company stooge just just goes, uh, "We fucking stole it, man!" Like <laughs> he's just like. <laughs> He just doesn't care at that point. Uh, yeah, I love how that guy gets like right into it. Like he joins their crew. He's like, "Fuck yeah! All right, what are we doing? Do you want this? All right, fine. I don't care." He what my like company says. loses his goddamn like eye. Yeah, uh, he has that eye patch at least for half the movie. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I love all. The, I do like the pirates. The pirates are really funny because they're so absurd too. And when uh, Kate Blanchett and Owen Wilson are in the the bedroom together and it's that like knock like it's it's more comical than it should ever be where <laughs> they're like they go to see who it is and all the pirates come in and they're like oh shit it's pirates <laughs> i don't know if you said this already but like what is it about this particular film that attracts you to it chuck like of all of his films this is the one that you like gravitate to the most or it, it is oh, i think it's this one and this one and Darjeeling, which we're going to talk about next since I picked these two. And I know Justin said that, that he thinks Darjeeling's his favorite out of them. Uh, and they both kind of deal with very similar things. Like, I feel like Darjeeling also has, uh, he does the, almost the exact same thing in that film where it's kind of everything's not, not necessarily a joke necessarily like it is in this film, but you have the, well, the three brothers. Aspect, yeah, right? yeah. You have the three brothers that, you know, they they hate each other. They can't get along. They have all these issues in their life. Uh, they try to go on this trip to to you know reconnect, and it, it really isn't until they have like a really dark moment uh, towards the end of the film, which we can get to when we when we get to that film. Uh, yeah, it just kind of wakes them up to to you know maybe maybe I have just been slacking off my whole life. Maybe I haven't really been trying. Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like that's a way that this film feels more realistic to put it that way than some of his other films. Like there is something that kind of grounds it in that. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to the Steve Zissou character. You know, he's he's kind of just been, you know, in the ocean, literally and metaphorically, I guess, just kind of floating along. And it's always just been he could just churn out these movies like taking pictures of fish and just that was all he had to do. And now it's now real life is catching up to him extremely fast that, that you actually need to do something. You can't just keep doing this for the rest of your life and expect people to pay you to do this and think that everyone's going to love you forever for, for doing these kind of mediocre works that, that really didn't, didn't do that much. And it's, yeah, the reality is really setting in for him that, that he needs the, Get his life. Sound a little bit like Ferris Bueller. Life comes at you pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was true in that film, and it's true in this film that uh, that it kind of just catches up to him, and he really starts to he really starts to realize uh, what he needs to do, and uh, he kind of needs to take things more seriously, and that that's it really you know that's what re-energizes him. I guess uh, I do love the finale of this film, uh, where it is kind of that almost like getting the band back together even though the band never broke up but uh the final moments when he it, it's a whole circle the very first beginning of the film was him showing the first half of his movie that was just a colossal failure and it was 
people making fun of him about you know, that one guy like yells like who are you gonna kill this time which then he does end up having someone die which is uh his his the person that he thinks is his son even though we we haven't mentioned yet that uh angelica houston reveals that steve zisu can't have kids because uh he's shooting blanks as she says yeah uh so it's 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 revealed there that definitely that this isn't his son um but he still like tra- you know tried to treat him like a son as much as he could at the end uh and yeah the when it comes full circle at the finale and the second half of his film when he finds the finds the jaguar shark and you know it's this beautiful moment and when he goes up uh, i always love the little kid with the he has like the lederhosen the version seahorse. of the yeah he has the seahorse i love and the seahorse and i love the stop motion of the seahorse it was so he cute ha- he has that and i love i love when everyone comes and they all have their zisu suits and he has like a lederhosen version of a zisu suit when he's like yeah. when they're all getting on the boat at the end that he like it's it's obvious that like he collects even more misfits this time like he's bringing uh he's bringing jeff goldblum with him on the boat and he's bringing the bond company stooge with him and uh um uh, just everyone's coming along with him and that's that's where it feels like that's where he finally like woke up uh like he more or less he sobered up that's almost like this whole thing is uh you kind of mentioned it earlier about like how he uses uh weed to avoid all of his problems and it feels like uh once his son dies or once once ned dies that that's like his sobering moment that he's like oh maybe i maybe i should stop this maybe i should actually take life seriously yeah, it's well, really yeah. good. It's, there's a really good introduction to this movie too, which I love the duality between this is what they do on the ship and this is how they're part of the filmmaking crew. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like this person uh, scrubs the deck, but he's also our sound guy. Yeah, everyone has two roles. Uh, and then I love the you know the questions, like you said, like everything comes back, but. Uh, question sir why didn't we get footage of the jaguar shark oh that's easy uh because i dropped the camera so yeah, yeah, and everyone starts laughing and he's just like he just looks at that guy why are they all laughing at me yeah i think that you nailed it though the the reason the thing that i like the most about his films are it's that emotional aspect the characters have and, and it happens in it happens in all the movies there's yeah. a connection and I think that the thing that people would get wrong is that it's the style, you know, like it's just the style that you're attracted to. And there's there's nothing else well, to it. As you've pointed out, like all of his films are about family. Like yeah. All of them are about a family or like, as you stated with this movie, it's a misfit family. It's all family. And it all has like a head of household of some sort and some director or another. Or someone who's like uh, the, the the oldest of it, so they kind of have to burden things. There's a lot of that kind of discussion in there. The other thing too, like with the by not maintaining the helicopter, that was him going through life, just ignoring things, thinking, "Oh, it'll be fine," and it's been fine up to that point. And then, like, because you didn't put like thought into it and maintain it and what have you, you killed someone. So, like, it's time to take shit seriously anyway, because, like, if you had of that wouldn't happen. And it's a consistent joke. Why didn't Owen Wilson fix the helicopter? That was one question I had. If he understood that it needed to be maintained and he had, like, some semblance of pilot. He's not a mechanic. He's a pilot. uh, You can't fly. (laughs) Trust me, I went to flight school. You you cannot fly a plane without knowing something about fixing it a little bit. You got to understand how it all works and runs or you can't. 
I, I also did flight training and it's same thing. You have to, that's what I was saying earlier. You have to once over your entire, you check the fuel in each wing with those little needles. You got to like go through. Well, maybe he was, uh, maybe he didn't know helicopters. <laughs> well, he it's said true. he's not he a helicopter and they are a completely different machine, but yeah. like he, he doesn't also... work for a great airline. He works for Kentucky air. He's not the, he's not the best, <laughs> but he also knew enough to know that it wasn't in good condition. Yeah. Like, but he still got on it he still made that decision <laughs> yeah i guess i guess that's the thought process too is that like uh yeah i guess that's the thing he trusted that steve would fix it for him uh later on which obviously he ignored and uh the whole reason he even gets in the helicopter is because he's getting like sucked into the to like the hype of it you know he they they need to get a better a better track on the on the shark because the equipment still like kind of goes in and out they're still they're still losing power and at that point that's when steve says like you know we'll, we'll just pack it up and go home and he he says like i'm, a, I'm an investor on this job like we're, we got to see this through we gotta we gotta finish this off every time they open a door one of the lights burns out yeah <laughs> constantly losing power in every every room there yeah it's yeah it is one of those like uh yeah with with steve zisu that yeah he kind of like sucks everyone into into the tornado that is his life and yeah two two people end up dying because he doesn't know uh maybe he doesn't know when to stop sometimes yeah and it's kind of sad because between rushmore and this movie bill murray does not have the screen time like this again in any other wes anderson movie no not at all uh, or he's kind of prominent in uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Moonrise he's also Kingdoms not prominent. Next, he's not there. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom's maybe like the next biggest role that he has after this, I guess. Yeah, I'd say that's he's, he's got He's got a larger one in that one. But yeah, something like uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, he's only in for like a scene at the end of that. Uh, Darjeeling. Darjeeling. He's, Darjeeling's like the one that he is a glorified cameo in that film. Like that, that he is almost not in remotely in that one at all what do you think draws wes anderson to utilize so much stop motion in his films or even like make films that are entirely done in stop motion because he's done two films now with stop motion fantastic major fox and the isle of dogs and this movie is just riddled with it like i think it's probably like he he likes that old like old classic look it's it's obviously he loves old hollywood and old foreign films and i i think it's like probably goes back to you know one of the first major major films of all time which was king kong that's like the <laughs> one of the that's that's going like all the way back to that was the first huge special effects yep. film that like inspired a lot of people and like the ray Harryhausen, uh you know clash of the titans and stuff like that but i think that's just Wait. it's it's a, it's a timeless feel like it it, it doesn't go out of style like what there's almost no difference it is a style it is a style but it doesn't go out of style it's it doesn't it doesn't feel different from the techniques might improve or they might get better but there's almost no discernible difference between watching nightmare before christmas and then watching fantastic mr fox even though those films came out like almost 20 years apart the the technology is still the same mostly for how you make that stop motion style is very unique even for stop motion like he uses a lot of felt 
He um, likes texture. It, yeah, there's more texture. He, he has a lot of, yeah, a lot of texture. Um, he tends to use natural colors of the items to create the color rather than like taking an object and like coloring it like specific. Like if you think of something like Paranorman, that company, I can't think of their name, but you know, what I'm talking about the box troll people, yeah. all that. Is they're like a like yeah yeah they're like the best stop motion company they're like the best yeah <laughs> they like the best <laughs> they, i mean but hands down like their technique is like insane or what have you so like oh yeah you, kubo you, and the two strings is fucking amazing whereas like isle of dogs in this one it's like almost like something a kid would do the way it's done like it's got that herky jerk because i used to do stop motion all the time when i was a kid in my room like this is actually like something i used to do constantly and so i used like clay or you know objects it's around not what you. some of us were doing in our rooms right. exactly <laughs> <laughs> so so in that regard in that regard like i like that he's does it in such a like bold like more traditional kind of manner and doesn't try to like push it too hard like it keeps that very herky-jerky which kind of gives it a very childlike quality in the fact that he's not trying to make it look good it's just kind of this cute fun imaginative like thing like they look like teddy bears and things like that and stuff and it makes his stuff look really appealing for kids but they i don't not, move in a realistic way either in movies, this movie. no but like don't give kids these movies like i mean they're okay but like i would not sit down and be like hey let's i mean watch kids Life have Aquatic. like wallace and gromit they don't get the they don't get the stop motion as much wallace i'm a huge fan of nightmare which is yeah you know henry Selleck, so it carries on over into this one but fan uh fantastic mr fox is a great example of it has that childhood feel or some of the books that you've read as kids were like they might have done yeah actually had the puppets and did pictures of them it reminds me of old british stop motion like growing up in canada like we used to have like the wind in the willows which was this like british stop motion cartoon and like british people made a lot of stop motion cartoons in like the 70s which canadians like i grew up with that most of my life so i'm used to looking at very dull gray kind of stiff stop motion sort of like content that's made by british people water shipped and down I, well that's animated but like uh i i I'm, i like that i like that herky-jerky old school kind of like not tra- non-traditional but traditional like the canadian national film board does a lot of stuff like this too so i love seeing west take that style and make it like prevalent in like american film because it's like kind of almost like a traditional british stop motion style in the way that he does it which will go back to how he likes to borrow so much from like other nationalities and stuff like you said like where he's moved into india he's like got so much indian content in his last like few films or specifically like the things that he takes uh, of recent memory chuck had us do the fire within and it's like clearly inspired strong it's moments such of royal tenant bombs or, yeah royal tenant bombs what were you gonna say I was agreeing with you. Oh, yeah. It's just like he he picks out these things and he focuses on them. And now it seems to be like a country and that and the director's style from that country. Yeah, I can see that. We'll have to try to explore more of that or try to pick that out of him. Because the guy that I'm trying to think of right now. For this. I thought it was seven. 
Well, he's good in that regard in that he diversifies his portfolio of content. Well, definitely like, you know what you're going to get into, but you also like get something different every time. It's never the same. He's not a one hit wonder. Like he's just got a visual style that carries through all of his films kind of thing. So I'm butchering the name a little bit. Uh, Carl Zeman. He was a Czech filmmaker and he had this, uh, criterion that came out that was like journey to the beginning of time and uh invention for destruction and it's all special it's all visual (laughs) effects are you laughing at me you disappeared for a minute yeah it's all visual effects and that style is definitely like highly highly influenced wes anderson maybe we'll cover it Maybe. It kind of fits that vein of uh, of uh, the old school films, like you know, uh, the Face on the Moon. Was that called? Oh Journey yeah, to the Journey, Moon. Journey to the Moon. Yeah, I love that one. Where it's like it's it's all the special effects are usually in camera or practical and or stop motion. Obviously, that picked up. But the style, I think, is really neat in Zizu, where when you are looking at the aquatic life, they don't actually kind of work well with what you're seeing, you know? They'll be, like, very flat. It's almost as if they're watching TV monitors, you know? Yeah. Well, and Even like, if it's supposed to be the glass window through their... They're all puppets on strings or, like, really goofy, like... And they're super bright and colorful and completely unrealistic. And not not a single fish or animal that he speaks of in the film is real. Like, not one. What? <laughs> the jaguar shark? I mean, is there a jaguar shark? There could be. Yeah, there's a tiger not, shark. I was going to say, not in reality. <laughs> not like the one in the film, anyway. I also enjoy too when he like doesn't always know what he's talking about exactly, like with the uh with the jellyfish and then Kate Blanchett shows up and she's like, These are man of war and he's like Ah, oh, son of a bitch, she's right. And he's like, We'll just loop that line later. Yeah. That's a, which which that's a, that I guess that's another like one of those uh moments with him of just like uh, instead of like knowing what he's doing up front, it's just eh, we can just uh we can just fix that later. We don't have to actually. Uh, the infamous will fix it in post line. Yeah, which seems to be his entire uh, his entire thought process throughout is is no. just we can fix it later. Nothing, okay, nothing's no. a pressing matter. Well, I I enjoyed this movie. I actually don't think there are any that I dislike out of his entire yeah. filmography. I, I was saying to you, like, if you know me. I hate everything. <laughs> I always have at least one that I'm not a fan of, what have you. And this is like one of the few directors where like, he's not my favorite director, but there's absolutely nothing he makes that I don't like. Like he's definitely like one of the best directors in going out there right now too. Like I legit get excited for everything that he does. Yeah, Anytime I hear he's making a movie, I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll watch that. At least it's something, you know, you know what you know what you're getting. That's for sure. Like, you always know what you're going to get. Well, as you don't exactly know, but, you know. If you don't know, now you know. <laughs> you know style. You don't really know much more than that. Right. Yeah. 
You're like it's going to be colorful and it's probably going to have like a like 60s 70s feel and that's probably I'm going to laugh. There's going to be serious yeah. moments in the movie. Yeah. Jason Schwartzman will pop up somewhere. <laughs> He'll be a bellhop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is the beginning of our Wes Anderson theme. We're going to do four movies, one down, three to go. We're doing Dark Geeling Limited next. So I'm actually very excited to talk about it. We've been mentioning it in code during a lot of the Hitchcock episodes where we would talk about Hitchcock's love for trains. And we're like, we're going to do a really big train episode (laughs) and our big train episodes the next episode. It's the Darjeeling Limited. There you go. That sounds exciting. Probably going to drink some Darjeeling tea as we talk about it. Is that that a thing? I didn't know. Oh, yeah. It's a type of tea. It is a real tea. I'm not food cultured. Uh, I don't think tea is food. Uh, are you sure? I think tea is a beverage. I mean, <laughs> go fuck yourself. Uh, you uncultured <laughs> swine. No, I'm I'm not cultured either. Not in the very, not in the least. I think nope. if I could have picked a Wes Anderson film, I probably would have picked a Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, this theme uh, was our last theme that was decided before Lexi joined. So Lexi had no say in any any of the movies no, that we chose. I'm just here for the ride on this one. But yeah, I definitely would have gone with either that. I didn't know The Isle of Dogs. I haven't seen that one, so I don't know if it's good or not. But uh, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. They're all good. They're all it's good. So I think Fantastic good. Fox is... I think it's the better of his two stop motions. Yeah. Yeah. Hard agree. And that's a roll doll, is it not? Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. We did a roll doll month on our podcast. and I thought you asked if it was a real doll. <laughs> no. I cannot I, uh, hear. He's a big part of my life growing up. Like, they've constantly forced roll doll down our fo- throat in Canada and, like, school. We had roll doll month and all this kind of stuff. He had a whole month? Yeah, seriously. We did every, every school year I had to do roll doll month. He had, like, a month that was celebrated everybody celebrated his books and stuff and i had to read i don't know we celebrated dr seuss and maybe where the wild things are we we think we're british so he's a british author but uh his works are always very disturbing and i think like where there's that adult edge to everything that roald dahl does wes anderson's perfect for that where he's like got that childlike quality in his work but he always has an adult edge to everything i think they have a nice crossover i'd like to see more more work from both of them kind of thing. Isle dogs would have been better there. during the pandemic to make too yeah because i even think french dispatch was a completed or nearly completed film in 2020 so they just kind of held off on it for a year and a half i had to watch isle now i'm interested i didn't know it was him it's his Japanese one too. Yeah. yeah, I really want to see it. Just I just wanted to see it because it sounds really interesting, especially where there's like the language crossover and everything like that. It looks really cool. Well, you have to check it out. I'm watching all of them. Nice. So far. So I've watched four, four of them, and his filmography is kind of like Kubrick's that we co- covered. It's very short. I think he only has like twelve tops. Nice. A nice even number. He's doable. Not like yeah. Hitchcock. 
No, it's not like the Coen brothers. What would take you longer to watch? Sincerely, all the Hitchcock films or all the Marvel movies? Uh, I think there's a cheat in there because I don't think you could finish all the Hitchcock because there's a few missing ones. Oh, really? You can never watch all the. (laughs) That's bullshit. (laughs) What could you get through? I mean, I don't know. There's, I know what you're asking. Like, taller. What I can tolerate the most, right? I just uh, if it's runtime, I feel like Marvel's going to be longer. I think yeah, I there's think a... the Marvel movies would take you longer because some of them are three and a half hours. Yeah, some of them are close to four. Whereas I don't think Hitchcock has a movie over two, does he? Yeah, but not a but lot not by much. Yeah, uh, I think that, Topaz that... is like his longest movie, and that's like two and a half hours. Oh, it's also because it's not one of his greater ones. Yes. <laughs> He let himself go. It feels longer. You feeling like uh, Pete Davidson? You need them short-ass movies? Yeah. (laughs) I was just talking about that at a... There's a skit on SNL from last weekend now, but it's Pete Davidson wanting to watch short movies because he's tired of his long-ass movies. And there's a moment because I keep... There's this uh, Generation Z that's working with me and they hadn't seen Jurassic Park <laughs> and they finally saw it. They finally saw it over the weekend and the review was like, it was good. It was okay. Yeah. Uh, which is not the best of reviews, but I really lost it because Pete Davidson's song, his little bit, he's singing, he's comparing Jurassic Park to sex in the city too. And he's like, yeah, you learn about how, dinosaurs evolved and DNA and how DNA and how you can replicate dinosaurs. He's like in sex of the city too, which is two and a half hours movies. Like there's 20 more minutes Four women. <laughs> four women. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. He, he pissed his pants while watching the Batman. Cause it was longer than the <laughs> Hobbit. That's that really, yeah, that, I, I really enjoyed that. And I really like, it's not even an attention span thing, but sometimes it is just like, it's just a sitting for so long just starts to get uncomfortable. Yeah. And Once upon like, a time in America, it's like almost the four hour runtime. He's like, what? Yeah. Nah, man. You start, they, I, they start rattling off all the films on Netflix. You could watch like Ernest goes to camp and Ernest saves Christmas and Ernest scared stupid <laughs> and Ernest goes to Africa. Dude, that was Ernest that Simon Rex, right? Huh? Yeah. Is that Simon Rex? Yeah. I never realized how eerily he looks like Ernest until he did that. Uh, Ernest goes to Africa. Seems like it would be problematic. Yeah. I, that covers I, scaring I, I, me. I don't. I think that's like the only one I never saw. But I saw every Ernest movie up to that point. I used to watch everything that he did. I loved. I loved. Uh, what is it? Vern. Jim Vern. Jim Vern. Yeah. 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 Vern was his you, uh, like imaginary friend. Did you ever see? Um, King of Staten Island. His mm-hmm. uh, that movie was excellent. I was but that like, movie's two hours and seventeen was. minutes, and you know, <laughs> right? Like, I was gonna say he I was feels like... like he needed that extra seventeen minutes to tell the story properly. That's a, that's a whole part of the story or the whole part of the song is is like. But how long was King of Staten Island? He's like, well, that was that was two hours and seventeen minutes, but we needed that extra seventeen minutes to like uh, really get into the story there. Yeah. I was surprised how good that movie was. That was like the first time I really spent time with Pete Davidson because I never really watched him outside of Saturday Night Live. I mean, he Live. doesn't really even have a longer movie. No. I mean, what's his next longest movie? The Suicide Squad? The... <laughs> he lasted a few minutes in that. 
yeah, I mean, he's been popping up in more and more things, but I, I still don't even think of like I can't even name a bunch of Pete Davidson movies. No, not at all. I think of like, was it um, Trainwreck? He's like the guy in the hospital. Like they're really like they don't really have big roles for him at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll go. Places, to, we'll go though. down that road eventually. He's got a Kardashian. He's fine. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, he might get killed by Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> Kanye is threatening him every day. That'd be awful. <laughs> Have Kanye threatening to kill Yo, you every man. day. That's one person you don't want after you. I'm like, no. Him and his comes Yeezys. At, comes riding up in a Sherp. Just, <laughs> just jumps out the front of it. <laughs> yeah. We derailed. but We did. We will not derail on the next episode because derailing is not okay when you're talking about a train movie. How's the train lost? It's on tracks. <laughs> we will, we will ask that question while we, when we talk about that movie. Fair? Yeah. That is fair. fair. Well, guys, girls, we'll see you next week. When we talk about Darjeeling Limited, I'm Justin. Tonight, Lexi. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Meu poder vem do sol Em a medida Então vem Vamos viver a vida Então vem Senão não vou perder quem sou Vou querer me mudar Para uma life on Faz questão Nem tem forças pra obedecer Quantos sonhos já destruí E deixei escapar das mãos Se o futuro assim permitir Não pretendo viver em vão Meu amor, não estamos sós Tem um mundo a esperar por nós Infinito do céu azul Pode ter vida em Marte Então vem cá Vem cá a sua língua Então vem Senão vou querer quem sou Meu poder vem do sol Minha medida Então vem Vamos viver a vida Meu bem Senão eu vou perder quem sou Oh, 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 vou querer me mudar para uma life from Mars.